In a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 33 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. This week, we journey back into the wizarding world created by J.K. Rowling for Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the first film in a lengthy new series set in the good old U.S. of A. instead of Britain. I expect my co-host to have a lot of fun with this one, considering his affinity for impressions. (laughs) And speaking of that awesome guy, Patrick, how you doing? I'm sorry, sir, but... Patrick is not in right now. He's in the laboratory. He'll be back in just a minute. This is Michael Caine. <laughs> you kind of sounded like a house elf. It's, uh, like, like, like Dobby? Are you talking about Dobby? <laughs> Maybe more like the goblins. That was, that oh, was the, more okay, a goblin. Okay. Michael Caine, <laughs> the as, goblin. I don't sound as crotchety as those guys, I don't think. <laughs> I could give you more, Mr. Potter. You know, no, I'm not going to do that. I, can't, I haven't perfected my Snape yet. So. It's, it's going to keep well, happening throughout this podcast, folks, so just be ready for it. <laughs> Embrace it. Embrace the impressions. <laughs> I'm good, man, uh, now that you ask it. <laughs> Since you asked, I'm doing real good. Obviously, I'm having a, a good evening, and uh, it's good to be here as usual with you. Same here. Well... Should we get right into what we've been up to this past week? I know um, you've watched another documentary. If I can spoil that up front, I mean, I could, I, I <laughs> could have pre- said, I could pre- say that, yeah, yeah, I could say that and have like a ninety-five percent chance of being correct. <laughs> if any of our listeners uh, would would like to take me up on this, there's a chance there might be a chance in the new year that some minisodes might be taking place with uh, covering documentaries. So if anybody isn't love with docs as much as me then uh maybe we can talk on uh, social media about that <laughs> that would be really yes, fun i like that that idea. would be good so as i kind of teased last week i was uh, given the opportunity to to watch a documentary called man versus snake the unlikely story of a game called nibbler the long and twisted tale of nibbler that's the game nibbler it, not to be confused with a kleptomaniac platypus called a niffler just, just clarifying right. Thanks for that clarification, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> so if you've ever played the game like Snake on your phone or on your calculator where you're this little pixelated thing and you're trying to pick up all these dots and as you pick up these dots, your little snake gets longer and longer and you have to get all the dots um, before time runs out or before you run into your your own self or whatever this is essentially where those games came from it's an it was an old uh, arcade game back in the 80s called nibbler and there was a guy named tim mcveigh no not that one who <laughs> he set the record for the most points this was one of the few games back then that whose uh, point value actually went up to a billion So most games back then, like Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, or whatever, only went up to like a million. And he was the first person to actually set the uh, record, to be the first person to do it. And so the the documentary kind of catches up with him and where he is now, giving him this information that somebody over in Italy had actually broken his record, had actually scored higher than him um, a short time after that. I can't remember if it was months or years, but that person had actually scored and had held the record unofficially for about 25 years. And so most of the documentary 
is exploring his need to kind of go back and reclaim that record. But it's really, I mean, it's not just about him. It's about the history of video games, in a sense, on a small scale. The uh, the arcade heroes of the 80s, those guys that set their records for, like, the perfect Pac-Man and the high-scoring Donkey Kong and these things. And uh, it was a really, really, really good documentary. I actually watched it twice because there were some things that I think I missed the first time around. And um, it's an exploration in a guy's need to not be a you know, be famous necessarily, but to feel like his accomplishment didn't go uh, for himself, wasn't, um, you know, wasn't tainted. And, uh, you know, it was his own personal journey of, of kind of reclaiming that for himself more than anything else. But it's a really good documentary. It's in the same lines as the, if any of you guys have heard, The uh, King of Kong. That's another documentary that... Uh, I'd recommend, but uh, but this was really good. Man vs. Snake, The Long and Twisted Tale of Nibbler. Came out in 2015, I believe. Yeah, and it's on Netflix right now. That's where you, you watched it. This is one that I was interested in, uh, being a gamer as well. Um, it, it was up my alley. And, I, you know, I didn't know what Nibbler was either. And when this first started, I thought it was going to be about the calculator game, Snake. You know, I thought I thought that's what we were talking about here, but unfortunately, it was not. It was about an arcade game that I'd, I'd never even had any knowledge of existing. So I watched it after you. Um, you had talked about how good it was, and one night I was just sitting around and like, oh, you know, maybe I'll fire this up. Gotta agree with everything you just said. It is really fantastic. I like the fact that the story revolves around this guy who isn't in it for fame or money or anything like that. He's really just there to challenge himself and to prove to himself that he can be successful at this thing. It's a, it's all about self-satisfaction. Um, and it's, that's so rare these days. It feels like for something to be done with no motive involved, he's not trying to get, uh, you know, sponsors or anything like that. He just wants to have his record back and he's willing to put in the work and the effort uh, to get that done. And I thought it was a, a really charming story and one of the most down to earth documentaries I think I've ever seen. A lot of times docs can kind of pump up their subject material in a lot of ways. It feels like maybe take them a little above their actual living environments. And, and this did not do that. I felt like this is exactly the guy who, you know, we're just, there in his everyday life with him as he goes through this process. And so I was thankful that you recommended it uh, because it was really good. And I think just to give them a quick plug, ultimately this rec came from where <laughs> the uh, retro rewind podcast, specifically Francisco Ruiz. He had sent it to me and he, he said, I think you would love this. And he was right. So thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Those guys do a lot of, uh, as you would imagine, retro movies, but they also talk about retro video games a lot too. So this is right up their alley, a perfect marriage and they have a great podcast and Patrick's been on their show several times. So if those things interest you, I would highly recommend you check them out. Fantastic, man. What about you? What have you been up to this week? Well, I have caught up with, uh, some 2016 movies. I did uh, just tonight. I, I watched Jason Bourne and, that was very satisfying for me. Uh, it, it was a kind of a flop at the box office this summer. We had kicked around whether or not we were going to cover it or not and ended up deciding against it. 
but ultimately it ended up being exactly what I, I kind of wanted. The way I think of Jason Bourne is, you know, there are film franchises that give you a formula, Marvel being one of them, um, the Fast, Fast and the Furious franchise being another. You know what you're going to get. You know, you're not you're not going to they're not going to come in there and just blow you away with some incredible new storytelling that you haven't seen in any of their previous episodes. Um, they are they are there to give you what you are wanting and and you know to feed that that beast into the, that you have that you want that specific thing. And this one did that for me very well. I think I think it's a good installment. Um, it's not mind blowing. It's not the best spy flick ever, but it was exciting. And the one thing I kind of pulled out of this film that was an interesting thing. And I wanted to talk about briefly is the ending scene was awesome. It, it was pretty simple. Just some, some dialogue, kind of a, a gotcha moment uh, for Matt Damon's character. And I actually chuckled out loud when this happened. And when the movie went off, I realized I was left smiling and I was left in a good mood because I really enjoyed the way that it just wrapped everything up there at the very end. And that informed my entire experience with the film so much because the previous two hours were, you know, lukewarm. They were up and down, good, not great. Like I said, satisfying, but it ended on that perfectly high note that had me excited for another Bourne movie. And I realized how, how impactful a really well done ending can be because that's what you walk away with is that last moment more than anything, you walk away with that. And so, yeah, for me, it was kind of a cool little experience just realizing that and thinking about it as I I went on uh, the rest of my night. But Jason Bourne was pretty good. Um, The other ones that I saw this week, I did a two movie in a day uh, dealio where one of the two films was uh, a screening of Loving. I got to go see an advanced screening of that since it's not actually. <laughs> I know, I know. So upset. We were supposed to do it on the show, but we'll get around to it eventually. I think I, I was, I was, you know, satisfied with that one as well. Uh, another great Nichols entry. Nichols doesn't do anything that I, I, I find it very hard that to believe that he would be able to disappoint me. Um, loving was not my favorite Jeff Nichols film, I will say, but it does exactly again, kind of what you would expect him to do with this subject matter. It doesn't focus on overly dramatic, intense courtroom scenes, uh, to handle this big, important case of loving versus state of Virginia. Instead, it really just lingers on the everyday moments of him fixing a car and, you know, her taking care of the kids. And that's, that's where this movie is, is made. It's, it's almost like a, a vignette of these little moments put together uh, is how it felt. So I really enjoyed it. It's the kind of storytelling that I like for that kind of material the most. And it was very, very well done. Great performances. I mean, fantastic performances across the board. So hopefully it will be coming out in a wider release soon so that all of you listening will get a chance to go see it. Very cool, man. You mentioned <clears throat> that this was kind of a not as good of a, I mean, you know, it's all relative when it comes to Jeff Nichols films. I'm like, 
his films are probably not going to disappoint you. And this one obviously didn't. But I know that in reading your Letterboxd review, you know, it had some, you know, it had some of its own little quote issues. I'm wondering, though, because you were high on Midnight Special, and I'm sure you are still high on that. I'm sure it's one of your favorites. And I was wondering, do you think that in light of our last episode, that when Nichols goes into the sci-fi metaphysical realm, that that piques your interest a little bit more because of that genre combined with his, what I would consider similar storytelling style to our last director here. Do you think that there's some truth to that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think anybody would, would have the same thing that they could say, whatever their favorite genre is, whether it's comedy or superhero flicks or uh, drama or horror movies. For me, it's science fiction. So really well done science fiction concepts um, blended with his method of dramatic storytelling and really character-driven, emotional um, directing is a great marriage. Uh, and yeah, I think that's probably why those are my two favorite films by him, his Midnight Special and uh, Take Shelter. So, it, it, But that being said, like it, it, he is in that pantheon of him, Denis Villeneuve, and Christopher Nolan for me, of where there is no film below a four-star out of five for me all of them are phenomenal works of art that i want to own i watch over and over again happily uh so it's kind of i'm kind of splitting hairs and i'm i'm grading jeff against jeff not against the field it's kind of like how when tiger was doing so well you know you didn't you <laughs> you had to rank tiger and or, or it was all relative to how well he's done in the past not not how relative his to how his peers are doing exactly so the last movie that I saw um, was one that was unexpected. I had one of our listeners talk to me on Twitter about this film called Moonlight, and I knew that it was getting a lot of buzz recently. It's being called the best film of the year by many publications. I believe it's the number one film right now, aggregate score on Letterboxd ranks, rankings. So this is a very, very beloved little indie movie, and I didn't know what it was about. I just knew it was supposed to be phenomenal. And so I booked a I booked a show and went and sat through that one. I got to tell you, very rarely has a movie ever lived up to the hype that I have seen written about it um, as Moonlight did. This film is incredible. It is extremely powerful. Um, extremely relevant to today's uh, society and culture and, and, and what's going on in the world. Basically, it's the story of uh, a young gay man um, growing up. He's a kid, and we go through these three distinct phases of his life. One as a, a young child, one as a, a high schooler, and then one as an adult. And we see how the tormenting of him in his childhood really impacts his path through life. Um, he's also uh, a black man. I don't know if I mentioned that, but he's a, he's a young gay black man who's get, growing up in, in basically a ghetto. Um, his mother's a drug addict. And it's, I mean, it is a gut punch story. Uh, it's a margin of society that we just don't see covered in film. And so I think that's part of what was so important impactful about it and really ultimately that's what's so important about it this is not 
uh, people who have movies made about them. You just you just don't see it. And so if they are made about them, it's more in like a humorous manner or, or jokes. Um, but this was really touching. Uh, I would say in a short way, I could say sum it up by saying it's a movie that really covers love in all its many forms. Um, when it's not just about uh, a homosexual relationship. That's, that's not what this film is about. Um, does it have one in it? Yeah, it does. But you could almost see the same relationship as these between two men in this movie as being a incredibly, you know, close friendship. Um, aside from maybe one scene. So the movie is phenomenal. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I think it is a very, very, very strong contender, uh, come award seasons. I will be shocked if it doesn't have nominations and it, I mean, it's a movie that could win an Oscar. Like I, I would, I, I could see this being, if it had a wider release and a bigger push, it's a best picture worthy film. So I highly recommend you guys go check it out. If you have the opportunity, um, it does have, like I said, that, that adult material to it. It's not one for kids. Um, but you know, you will come out affected by it and it will start to kind of make you think about how you treat other people and about how maybe you need to think about others around you because you never know what they're going through. So, uh, moonlight was great. Man, I'm glad you uh, got a chance to see both of those that are potential Oscar worthies. Um, <laughs> and uh, I wish I lived in a town or lived near a town that had those opportunities. So I'm glad I can at least live vicariously through you when you tell me about those. And I put them on my list of movies to definitely see so that I don't feel like an outsider looking in when it comes to Oscar season, which is a very long name for a list. But still very relevant. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's not to be confused with the movie that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, fantastic beasts and where to find them, which I would think between the two of us, we probably agree. This is not going to get a lot of Oscar buzz. <laughs> well, I would be pretty shocked. I think I could see it getting a, some sort of a visual effects nod. Uh, in fact, I would probably expect it to, um, and that's, I guess, what my takeaway from the film was. Uh, I guess I'll start. So I got to see this one with a good friend who's a big Harry Harry Potter fanatic and also my kids. It was my first experience in IMAX 2D, which was amazing, by the way, and something I will seek out in the future uh, for films that I, uh, I would love to see in IMAX because IMAX is amazing. The screen, the sound is just, it's unbeatable for you know, things like a Nolan movie, like Dunkirk. Like, I'd love to see that on an IMAX 2D because I don't need 3D. 3D's, like, overused, in my opinion, and just not necessary for the majority of films. Right. Was it was it true IMAX, though, or was it just really big screen? Because we haven't, quote, IMAX theater in our town, and um, I, I did some research. It's not nearly as big as IMAX. So we've nicknamed it Limax. I don't know. That's if you have actually a... hilarious. No, no, these are <laughs> these are IMAX screens. They just okay. don't have the 3D. It's not turned on, I guess. It's um, not turned on. But it's it's a legit <laughs> IMAX screen. 3D button. I don't know. I think I don't know how it works, man. Uh, maybe there is. Maybe Engage like a... 3D now. <laughs> but um, no. 
yeah, it was a it was a good experience. I think because of the visual nature of that this film has and its dependence on CGI, it was a good choice to see it on such a big screen. And I would recommend most people uh, out there if you haven't seen it yet, you do go see it on the big screen. Also, if you haven't seen it yet, we are going to spoil the film. There are secrets and twists to be talked about, so turn away now before we ruin it for you. <laughs> or you have been warned and proceed at your own risk. Yes. Um, ultimately, man, I didn't love it. I was pretty lukewarm while watching it. I kind of was disappointed pretty early on in the film, and I think it just hung over me. There were things that I did enjoy about it. I didn't hate my experience by any means. I just didn't love it. And it would probably be the least likely of the universe films that I would, the wizarding world universe films that I would revisit. Uh, I have no desire to really go see it again. Um, I don't really, I wasn't thinking coming out of it going, Oh, I got to own that one for my collection. Um, I think that it does some decent world building and setup for the franchise that is about to become a monster or a beast. I think there's going to be five of these movies and it's crazy because it's all, you know, born out of this tiny little less than a hundred page <laughs> short story book, uh, that, that JK Rowling wrote. But, um, yeah, I, I, I liked it. I didn't love it. I don't know. What about you? Well, I, I came away kind of feeling the same thing. And, and, and we've talked offline about how this is one of those movies that we were, I guess, sort of looking forward to, but it wasn't next to, you know, the other, you know, some others that we've been really looking forward to seeing in the theater. And, you know, I, I would consider myself a mild Harry Potter person. You know, I've done the, you know, I've, I've read the books, I've seen the movies, they're phenomenal. Um, definitely worth rereading and rewatching. I've taken the online quizzes to find out which house I'm in, you know, that kind of thing. And which one, but, uh, I ended up with Ravenclaw actually. Oh, convenient yeah. considering, I don't know if you noticed, but Newt, I don't know if they ever actually mentioned it, but at the end, Newt is wearing a blue and yellow Ravenclaw scarf. I thought he was okay. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. See, but see this, this, you know, this carries my point. I think it's there. Ravenclaw. Maybe it's Hufflepuff and I'm wrong. I but think it's, I, Huff, I think it's Hufflepuff. He, he feels they, like a Hufflepuff, but I could have sworn it was a Ravenclaw. <laughs> I think he's a Hufflepuff. But therein is my point that I'm sort of a fringe fan. I, I mean, a fr I'm a fan of the TV show fringe, but I digress. It's a, uh, I'm, I'm a mild fan of the Harry Potter series and that I don't know the deep, you know, insights into the world of, of, of the, the, the minor characters. I actually got a little confused during the, during the movie about this Grinnenwald guy. I didn't know about his history cause I'd forgotten about his, his role, uh, as it was portrayed in the books. And so going into this movie, it was the same kind of expectation that I had going into a movie like pan, you know, I knew it was, you know, it was, I, I knew it was part of the Potter verse, but it wasn't necessarily connected directly to it. It would probably have some callback to it. Um, none of the original characters that I knew from the films were going to be in it. They might've been referenced. And so my expectations were tempered. And so my experience coming out of it really didn't go up or down. It was as expected for me. And which wasn't bad by any means. I mean, I enjoyed the movie. Um, I, I, I'm glad that 
I'm glad that we have a show in which we don't review films that we don't like altogether. You know, that we're me too. That we're that we're a duo of, of guys that are like, this is going to, you know, we have pretty good expectations. We feel like we're going to enjoy this movie or that movie. And because you and I, you know, live on the world of limited budgets and limited time, uh, we have to pick and choose which movies we go see. So there's never been a movie that I've said, man, I wish we hadn't seen that. <laughs> but that being said, this wasn't one of those movies that I will go back and see. It wasn't a movie that I had a huge, like, high expectation for. But for me, that was good because it didn't disappoint, but my level of, you know, expectation wasn't as high as yours, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I don't think it was. Um, I, I've read the books several times, m- more than twice, uh, all the way through. Um, I've gone to midnight release parties specifically for book seven. I remember it vividly coming home, uh, going going through Deathly Hollows and just reading it all night long until the wee hours of the morning and um, you know a certain character dying who was very close to my heart. I remember throwing the book up against the wall. I was so upset. I was, I was very bought in to the Harry Potter universe. You know, I own the Blu-ray set. I watch them at least th- all the way through once a year. So I did have expectations. And my expectations were, I think, for the heart and the charm of Harry Potter to continue. And where I feel like this one failed was in that area. And again, it's not a huge, it's not a a total failure. It's not, it's not like a a catastrophic loss here. I'm not reviewing this film and saying, this is a half star. Don't ever go see this movie. This is an enjoyable film that's worth seeing, but it didn't reach the heights that I was hoping it would. It felt much, much more like a setup of a long franchise. And I, I kind of liken it back to uh, the original two Harry Potter movies, the first the first two. We didn't know any of the characters yet, as far as, uh, or the actors yet. And those first two films were, were kind of rough, honestly. Um, even going back and watching them today, they're more like what Fantastic Beasts is. They're enjoyable, they're fun, but they're not great movies by any stretch of the imagination. The difference that I see is that for most of us, when we first started with Harry Potter films, we had already read four or five books. So we knew the characters before starting off. We had a background. We knew where the story was going to go. We weren't just watching a movie with a brand new idea. Like we we had we were invested in it already. And this was different. This is a situation where J.K. Rowling has come in and written a screenplay from scratch for a movie. And to me, it's drastically different than adapting a book for the screen. There's there's two different things. And I think that what we got in Fantastic Beasts with its focus on CGI and its twisting, circling shots and, you know, city destruction and just some of the the humor and the quippiness, it felt like it was written for the big screen uh, to be a summer blockbuster versus adapting a book that had a lot of connective emotional tissue to its readers. What do you think about that concept, I guess, of 
the difference in adapting versus writing for the screen directly? Well, <clears throat> I would say that uh, it's hard, and I'm a little confused. So clarify this for me. The book, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, if I remember correctly, is a fictional book that Harry has in the, in, in the first story that we encounter, you know, the Sorcerer's Stone um, and, or, yeah, Sorcerer's Stone. And it, it, it's, it's referenced in that, in that book movie, right? Well, yes and no. It, yes, it is referenced in the books, but there is an actual book. So J.K. Rowling put out a, 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 a two-book set of these short stories, one of which is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and it's just a bestiary, essentially, of okay. all of the different creatures. So, and the other one is the rules of I guess Quidditch. Okay, so it's a these are these are companion books to those who enjoyed the book series, and they're kind of you know whatever. So in the same way, uh, from the Miss Peregrine's thing, there's a, there's a book that the author has published that is a you know it's it's a book within that universe that's as a companion book. You say so. Okay, I get that. So what I would say is that I think what would what would have made this movie better going in is had it not been referred to as that book, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, because the essence of that book itself is a bestiary. It's it's an encyclopedia. And what we get is a movie from the world of the Potterverse involving a guy who wrote this book called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And it, to me, knowing that now, it doesn't really line up. It's as if it was going... It's as if J.K. Rowling was saying, okay, we're going to use this main character that we introduced kind of indirectly in the first Potter movie, book, whatever, and we're going to give him some characteristics. And the, it didn't seem like there was originally even an adaptation that took place. It was as if there was <laughs> – to me as a viewer, it confuses me because I'm going Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is the name of the movie – but none of what happened in the movie occurs in the book, quote unquote. And so at this point, I'm almost saying, J.K. Rowling, why don't you say The Adventures of Newt, you know? Right. And and I think it, at least at that point, you would create some, you know, verbal, grammatical, whatever, separation between this expectation that you have of what you've been introduced to, even indirectly for this Fantastic Beast book that Harry carries around and that we eventually kind of get a hold of through, you know, the power of publishing and the, the world that we're introduced to, which is this adult centered gray <laughs> world that begins, um, ex examines, um, explores and ends on a very adult or at least a fairly adult, um, theme. So, for me, I think that's probably where where I landed that I think it's it's obviously tough to write a screenplay as opposed to taking a book and then adapting it because you already have the world built in your head. You've written a book and the books themselves for the Harry Potter world were already successful. So you already had a built-in audience whereas Fantastic Beast is simply a an addendum, a here's something for the fans whose movie wasn't really based on its subject matter. It was simply inspired by, at the very least, 
And I think that's where some of the some of the separation comes, especially for big Harry fans, is that you have those kinds of expectations, but there's not really source material to expect it from. So you're kind of at a disadvantage as a as a viewer, especially as a fan of the Harry Potter world, because it's like you're really coming up with something original, and the only thing you have to compare it to are seven books and eight movies that just blew your minds, you know. So it's a it's a tough place to to land for for I think any kind of viewer who's a fan because you already have a high expectation. So it's got to do something pretty amazing to at least meet that expectation. Yep. I would agree with that completely. And I also think that the title in general really sets the expectation of this movie is going to be about fantastic beasts. I mean, that's you, you have to have that, going in like you you're you're expecting to see them you're expecting it to be about them and i kind of had a couple thoughts on that one being that the cgi use of the beasts and the creatures was interesting um some of it i liked some of it i didn't and ultimately outside of maybe the scene inside of the suitcase where we get to see them all in their own habitats it wasn't that fantastic to me. Um, it wasn't that exciting. There was a couple of moments, uh, one being the very opening scene. I mean, the movie starts out with a great, great, great scene, uh, where we're introduced to the Niffler, the kleptomaniac, uh, platypus and that the creation of that character, that the, you know, the visualization of what that character is, you know, (laughs) this, this, this monster guy that like goes around and steals money and, and shiny things was awesome. That was so much fun. I loved that. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Um, and then the other one would be the gosh, I don't even remember what it's called. The Akami, Akami, gosh, I don't know. Their, their names are hard. I think it's the Akami, but it was like the snake like dragon thing. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Uh, the thing that shrunk up and that got big and small. Right. Is that the one? Yeah. That, the concept of that beast was incredible to me. It was very unique, very imaginative. And those two specifically, those two scenes and those two creatures called back to that joy of Harry Potter that I remember of being introduced to the, my first hippogriff or a unicorn in the forest um, or an, you know, any other creature the basilisk, these things in the Harry Potter world that we came across that were like, oh my gosh, wow, right? But the rest of them were kind of meh and didn't live up to that. And so I felt like a little gypped, like I wanted more Fantastic Beastiary. Um, and then ultimately, I, I just, I guess part of it is is that it's all it's all around the expectations. So I mean, I, I admit fully that that's where I'm coming from, but... I didn't feel like that was what the story was about. You titled this book Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, but or this movie, but really that's not what the movie's plot is. It has nothing to do with it. It's just it happens that we have a character with a suitcase full of beasts, but that has nothing to do with what the storyline is. You you may I mean that that's the perfect point. And you know, to to accent that, to actually compliment that we have a new release, a new book release called Fantastic Beasts, the original screenplay. So clearly, even the publishers recognize that this is a completely different, at the very least, a minimal connection to the original book material, source material. And I agree with you. I feels, it feels a little 
manipulative to title a book based on something that is familiar to a fan and to give them something that is completely, almost completely disconnected from that world. Again, I, I can't say this for sure. Let's go back to our conversation about The Magnificent Seven. You mentioned if this movie, if Mag Seven had been called something completely different, you would have had a different response to it. Yep. But because it was called that, you automatically connected it to your experience from the 1970s, uh, 60s, 70s, the 19, or the late 1900s, whatever, the, <laughs> the, the original. <laughs> and I think in the same way, you get this same kind of attitude that you title something based on the familiarity that people are going to know it. You're selling the title. You're not selling the movie at that point. If you would have said something like the the strange adventures of Newt, blah, 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 I think you would have had a different audience and maybe the expectation would have been lower and therefore your, you, Aaron, or anybody that had a kind of a disappointing experience um, would have been different. Maybe it would have been more in line with me of going, I have no idea what this book is and I'm okay with that. <laughs> yes, I think it would. I do. So, so I, you know, it's just, you know, that that would be <laughs> the expert in the room, which is me. No, whatever. It would say something like, you know, name it something different. You know, if, if you're creating a Potterverse or something in this Potterverse, name it something different because you've got strong characters. You've got characters that are likable. And I think you can sell that for sure. Well, that's a good lead in. So let's let's talk about the characters. Um, I know that we have probably some shared love for some of them and possibly some differences. What did you overall? What did you think of the cast, both the casting and the acting? And then it's more more importantly, um, you know, the development of the characters that we got in this first one. Well, Eddie Redmayne as as Newt, I really enjoyed him, and I think that his portrayal of of Newt as this awkward, I, I almost want to say, <laughs> kind of um, uh, Asperger kind of thing. I I remember seeing him several times where he wouldn't necessarily look at people in the eye when he talked to them. He would kind of look off, off the other way. So he had some kind of, you know, a touch of, it felt like a, you know, autist, a person with autism, a characteristic of someone with autism where they don't look you in the eye. And it was this really awkward kind of socially awkward type of character. But to me that fit into who he was because he was a guy that hung out with animals. He hung out with beasts and his character, um, accent it, it complimented that because when we get into his suitcase in that world he looked so comfortable he looked so just very much in his element and you contrast that with his interactions with other humans with the um you know whether they be wizards or nomads folks you know whatever it's to me i felt like he, the introduction of this character named newt um I now know that character a lot more. And so I'm hoping that in future installments, if I choose to go see him, that we're going to see more of that consistently, that we're going to see an awkward guy who, when he's in this element hanging out as a sort of a scientist bestiary guy, then um, he'll be a lot more, you know, comfortable. 
but he, he felt like an absent-minded professor to me and to me that worked well i would agree on on him to some extent i i do think that you're you're nailing it perfectly that he is awkward at best uh, out in the real world and then in his element with his beasts when he's doing what he loves um taking care of them saving them uh, I, my so i i i i'm kind of torn because while i acknowledge that it is an accurate portrayal of what we were supposed to, what they wanted to give us and that he did a good job of doing what they wanted to give us. Um, it's very hard for a character like that to carry the film as your lead. And so that was difficult for me because he's the one that we see in the most scenes. Like he's the one that's supposed to be the main character dragging or driving us forward. And it was tough for him to do that because of how that character is, is built. Um, it, it was, I, I, I'm kidding, but it really felt like, you know, he was still playing Stephen Hawking from the theory of everything and just in the wizarding world of Harry Potter, um, which kind of is a typecast thing that Eddie Redmayne is going to have to start dealing with because he's had several characters that are really just like this. Yep. Um, yeah. My, my sister-in-law was asking me about this movie. She hadn't seen it yet. And I mentioned his awkwardness. She goes, doesn't he do that in all of his movies? And that may be why they cast him because they wanted this awkward guy. Yeah. Yeah. He really does. And you know, and he's good at it. He's, he is good at portraying that. And so, like I said, I, I think he did it well, but I also think that it was a tough choice for the film and something that it had to overcome the fact that it was going to use that as its lead. And so that was a little bit of a, you know, detractor for me. That being said, I thought some of the supporting cast around him, did a really good job of trying to pick up that slack. Um, first of all, the character creation of this Jacob Kowalski character, this uh, muggle, because I refuse to use the word nomad. Um, I think <laughs> I, I cannot stress enough how I hate that word and how uninspired and just ridiculous it is that you would come up with the word nomad. Oh, and then, and then in the movie, even have a character vocalize it by going, you know, no magic. I just, I do not like it at all. I think it's silly. And compared to the fact that we got made up words like muggle, uh, in the other Harry Potter universe, I just didn't like it, but you know, typical America <laughs> keeping it, keeping it, uh, yeah, simple we're, for us. We're, we're, we're going to agree to disagree on that one. Oh, you like it? I do. Because again, it highlights something for me that I think this movie does. And that's whether it's heavy handed or not. Part of what I think the film is trying to do is to create a world in the U.S., which I thought was very playful. You know, Muggle, I had no idea what Muggle was when I first heard that, and that sounded kind of stupid. But you get seven to eight movies that really reinforce that, and now it's become a staple. So I would imagine that over the course of five movies, if this, if this is used as Nomad, it's going to become part of that pantheon of things. And so uninspired or not, I think just like that, and the the quip that um, what's her face makes um, in talking about the American school versus Hogwarts is I, I think I want more of that in future installments, more of that digging uh, at the British versus U.S. idea of wizardry. So you have this common ground of being a wizard and yet you're still sort of divided by cultural uh, differences. And I hope that they play more into that because I think that's I think that could become something that's very humorously strong it could be something that's very thematically strong 
but uh you know i enjoyed it i thought it was cool well i agree i mean that's that's what i'm saying too is that i wanted more of that i wanted that's one of the things i didn't like about the film or that you know lessened my its impact on me is i wanted more of the uniqueness of america compared to the British world. I'm just saying, I don't like the fact that we're using the words, no magic and putting them into a word. And then using that as what we call a person. I just think it was, it was lazy to me to come up with that word versus creating a new, new word for it. That aside, the character that is our nomad, I will respect you and use it, um, is Jacob Kowalski, the baker. And I love him. I love everything about him. Everything about his acting and his character arc is my, it's my favorite thing about this film and that's also somewhere that I struggle because the best thing about this Harry Potter movie to me is a muggle or a nomad. It's non-magic character. And I don't know whether that's a good thing or that's a bad thing, but it is a thing. <laughs> I really loved him. Um, and I think that his inclusion was, uh, you know, somewhat there for comedic relief, obviously at times, but he had the most heart. He brought the heart and the charm to this film for me more so than anybody else. I can get that. And for me, I'm definitely on board with, with him. He is my favorite as well. And I think what he did that made him stand out to me besides being, besides not being awkward, (laughs) like our main character was that he represented who we are as an audience. And going back to what you mentioned about where the fantastic beasts you know, he was ignorant of that. And I think like us, we didn't know what to expect coming into this movie. And we got so many different emotions from him. We got so many different like facial expressions and expressions and emotional responses from being like confused to shocked to frustrated. I think at one point he just he smacks Newt with his suitcase or with his briefcase, like right in the face or something. And but we, what we get is a rounded character that we grow with as well, you know, because we're sort of getting used to this, this world of of wizardry, which, which I mean, I guess you would, you'd probably agree when I say it's a different kind of wizardry world, not not necessarily different from, you know, British, like it's new necessarily, but it's different. It's on the U.S. soil, and there's new characters. I mean, there's nothing that's really connecting us back to the original book series. And so as a, as, as a character, Kowalski, I think, is learning just like we are and being introduced to these new ideas, to these new characters, and becoming someone who I think is more, by the end of the film, we didn't want him to get, you know, mind wiped. <laughs> we wanted him to be able to, you know, be part of that world. And I think that's kind of how he is for us. And that's why I connected with him the most, because he was me. You know, he was the guy that, as he was getting confused, I was getting confused. And as he was being odd, I was being odd. And uh, and, and I think his character was the most rounded out, uh, no pun intended, because he was a rather kind of round character, uh, <laughs> a person. But but he was. I definitely agree with you that his his character brought the most charm and the most heart to the film. And it. I mean, you're right. It is. I mean, when when Newt's supposed to be your lead actor or your lead character, that mm, I'm. Yeah, I don't I don't know that that was necessarily the best way to uh to to bring that in. Well, the good thing is and you know, I was going to end with this later, but I can say it now anyway. It, it fits. It, my my hope is still there for future installments. So my takeaway in this film is even though that I'm not 
loving it and just completely immersed into it. I do know that it's setting things up and it's done enough that I want to see the next one. And I'm excited about where it could go with some of these characters and their continued development. I love the characters of Tina and Queenie as well. I thought they were very good. Um, I don't think that Tina, the, I'm, I'm a little, I mean, I think Catherine Waterston did a great job with the character, but how the character was written I don't know that that was great. Um, I kind of had some issues with J.K. Rowling's screenplay. I I really, I almost think that she needs to just be an advisor, frankly. Let someone else write it. Give them the general ideas and say, here's what I want the general overview of the story to be. Make this a movie. And then to tweak it, just like she would have done with the books. Because I think her writing it directly took away some of the... It just it wasn't as tight as a as a movie for me, dialogue wise and and mm-hmm. plot line wise. Yeah, I mean this this would seem just to your credit. I think this would be like the equivalent of a episode episode four. George Lucas wrote and directed, and then he handed off the writing reins to somebody else. And we know that A New Hope wasn't necessarily like the strongest of the three. Most people would say Empire is. Is that because George Lucas didn't write it, or did he write it? I want to make sure I get that right. If I got that wrong, then. This is going to ruin my whole. It's a totally point. yeah. I, I know what you're saying though. But you, but you get what I'm saying that sometimes the 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 owner heart wise of subject matter has to release that to let somebody else actually screenplay something because writing for the screen and writing for the book are are definitely two different worlds. You know? And well, and another character because I want to make sure we touch on this too is is I loved Colin Farrell his Graves villain-ish character here, uh, who we don't really know as much of a villain until the end, of course. Uh, I mean, it was pretty telegraphed, I thought, from the very beginning. That was another kind of minor quibble I had with the film, is that I knew instantaneously that Graves was uh, going to be Grindelwald eventually, primarily because they, they give us a shot zoomed in of Grindelwald's haircut, his blonde haircut and the way that his his hair is done on you know shaved around the sides and, and hair on top of his head, and then they introduce Graves with a scene of us walking behind him, and he's got the exact same haircut only it's dark black. I mean it just it was so obvious that by the time instead of instead of going oh my gosh it's Grindelwald I was like yeah I've wondered when they were gonna finally you know admit it to me so. That was kind of like, eh, I would have liked to have been surprised versus um, knowing it was coming because that that was a cool moment or it could have been a really powerful, cool moment to be like, oh my gosh, it's not Colin Farrell, it's Johnny Depp. Um, but I thought, <laughs> but I thought anyway, I, when I first saw Colin Farrell in this, I, I hesitated because I was like, uh-oh, I, I don't know if this is going to work. Like, I don't see him as a wizard at all. I just, it, it did not work for me in my imagination he pulled it off great, and I thought he did a fantastic job uh, with his character. Yeah, I thought so too. And again, coming from a guy who was not familiar with with Grindelwald and, and that history, I was a little confused. And so when that reveal happened, I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah." I, I didn't see it coming, but it wasn't as big of a impact for me as it you know maybe it expected. It was a, <laughs> it was the amount of impact. It was the same impact for me and you, but for completely different reasons. Right, and uh, I. I thought it was interesting. I actually watched, you know, when he first came on the scene, I think it was probably maybe 30 minutes 
of him being on screen before he actually talked. That was kind of weird to me. You know, yeah. I was like, does he have, you know, what's going on? And so, so riddle me this was his goal to, was he, was he trying to capture, um, the, what was he trying, what was his, what was his point? What was he trying to do? That's, that was my biggest beef is I didn't really know what was his MO. Like, what was he trying to do? So, you... so Grindelwald, um, Grindelwald or Graves? Graves. I mean, yeah, with, with, um, with, uh, with our guy, um, <laughs> so, right. Credence, but Credence, thank you. So I don't know. Honest, honestly, I don't know. And that was part of the thing that bugged me is I don't know what Graves' deal was all about. I know what Grindelwald's deal is, though, and so I can probably kind of figure it out if I think enough. Um, Grindelwald is very similar to Voldemort. Grindelwald is like the, the world's first dark wizard or the one before Voldemort comes around. And yeah. Grindelwald's whole thing is that muggles or nomads should be ruled and not um, like the wizards should not be hiding. They should be ruling the nomad. Okay. It's it's basically Voldemort before Voldemort. Okay. Um, and then ultimately what ends up happening is Grindelwald is known because he gets into a duel with Albus Dumbledore yeah. um, and Dumbledore's sister gets killed. So it it's an interesting story point because we know it's building to us getting to see Grindelwald fight a young Albus Dumbledore, which will be awesome. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I know that as Graves, I think that part of what his goal was is to figuring out who this, whatever they called it was. Um, what, what's the interesting new thing? The Obscurus. Obscurus, yeah. Right, and I think he, he wants the wizarding world to be made known because he wants to rule them. He wants mm-hmm. to rule the nomad. Uh, that's his goal. So th- that's kind of what I got out of it. I hope that that's that's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it it sounds about right. But again, I I think this is this is where this is my biggest flaw with the movie is the expectation is that you understand and know the world beforehand, and that's a good thing. But I'm a casual fan, and that's probably because my again my expectation wasn't I mean, it was met. It wasn't it didn't exceed and it wasn't below. But there was enough in there. That's setting up sequels, that's setting up an entire new kind of universe that it was a little confusing because you were giving me backstory about this guy through newspapers. And I didn't visually that was one of my one of the problems I had was very that, fast. Very yeah, fast. I, I didn't know what was going on. I was like, what am I supposed to be focusing on here? Am I supposed to be focusing on because what I'm used to seeing is Harry Potter lines, you know, the 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 you know, the one the boy who lives, you know, is, you know, playing Quidditch or whatever. You know, and to me that just didn't I think that that was probably a misstep for someone in my shoes now again I'm probably in the minority and you you should never make a movie just for me I mean unless you know unless you want to that'd be fantastic but (laughs) I get what what was happening and I get that whole idea and it made me want to go back and kind of dig into that and go okay I get that but it was more to just fill in some holes as opposed to saying, I want to know more about the series. So. Right. It's more of like a frustration. You just want to get up, get rid of exactly. Then, <laughs> then genuine interest. But right. Um, well, you know, 
one of the other interesting things is just that this world is so dark, right? Mm. It's so it's so much darker than we start at Harry Potter. When we start Harry Potter's world off, it's much more lighthearted, and we kind of build up to book seven and the Deathly Hollows and the big fighting and stuff. This one feels like it almost is a continuation of that world um, where it's very dark, this, this obscurest thing. Some of these scenes, they're this crazy CGI that was going on in this film, man, it was nuts, like cities destruction. And it, it was crazy. It felt like I was in a Marvel movie, but <laughs> um, this obscure civil war. <laughs> yeah. Harry Potter civil war. <laughs> That'd be, and I would go, that's a better title. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not for this one, but for one. Uh, anyway, this Obscurus is a very interesting concept, and it is one of the things that, while I did not love the fact that that was the big bad in this movie and that was the depiction of it, because ultimately the main villain of this film uh, amounts to a, an enormous, giant, black cloud. Like, that's what the main villain is. That's, I mean, say that out loud, folks, that really love this film. That's your main villain. So those of you who complain about the big blue light in the sky in Marvel movies. Like it's the same thing. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I think that the idea of the Obscurus is very cool. The fact that, you know, by suppressing, you can end up creating this thing and it, it ends up kind of taking you over and you become this, this monsterish um, evil form. Uh, and so I, I'm interested to see where it goes from here with that concept because it's it's i think it's kind of like the american version of a dementor in a way i mean it's not doesn't serve the same purpose but you know it didn't give me the same terrifying fright as the dementor did but i think it's meant to serve a similar kind of idea and so i i'm very intrigued about it yeah it has a the 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 obscurus has a different basis too i think i mean it's a it's it's a unique kind of basis that um, and it's it's one worth exploring from a social standpoint of is it right to suppress who you are and how, in, at least in the wizarding world, what that can do to a person. And uh, and, I, and I thought that was kind of cool. But again, I agree with you. It's a very dark movie. And I don't think there was much fantastic as opposed, you know, apart from the very little that we got. It was more of just, you know, kind of creepy. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and move into our connecting point. Uh, section because I know that um, despite it not having a ton of that with the characters there are some moments in this film that we both were really drawn to so I'll start my favorite scene slash moments of this film came very near the end when the battle was over and the president of Makusa, which, by the way, is another thing that I actually really do like about the American version. I, yes, it's the same thing as um, the – gosh, now I can't even think about it <laughs> – what it was called in Harry Potter. Ministry of, the Ministry of Magic. Yeah. Um, but Makusa is a great ac- acronym for Magical Congress of the United States of America. And also, I read a great review that pointed this out, and it was a whole bunch of cuss words. And then, and then the words, oh, you know, holy cow – the wizarding world had a female president before us. Come on world. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was interesting, but um, I liked that. Honestly, I liked that choice, but Makusa is really cool. So after the battle was over and the president tells Newt to obliviate Jacob, they go through this scene of, you know, Newt, Newt has the rain coming down now. 
and they're walking up out of the subway and he's just hovering there on the edge of uh, this, this rain that's going to take away his memory. And it really felt like his arc came full circle and you pointed all of this out earlier. So I'm not going to rehash it because it's exactly the way I felt about Jacob is I felt like Jacob was me in that moment. And I was about to forget everything I just saw and I didn't want to. And I was so connected to Jacob because I, I mean, I was pained for him. Like I, I did not want him to walk into that rain. I wanted them to stop him. I wanted them to say, no, we're going to, we're going to, you know, we don't need to do that. We're going to take you and we're going to protect you. And we're not going to give in to the establishment that says we have to obliviate you because we trust you and you're our friend. And frankly, that's what would have happened in Harry Potter. I think like in that world, that's what would have happened. And the difference in America is that, you know, we live in a different magical area here where people are executed for not following the laws. I mean, that's, that's heavy. That wasn't happening in Mm -hmm. Britain. And so, you know, they're willing to let him, even though they ask him, you know, are you sure He, he goes willingly? And I think that that was a huge deal is that he comes to terms with it. And he goes through this great little speech where he tells us, you know, it's kind of like a rival. And the idea that we talked about last week of, is it better to have loved and lost than never have loved at all? If you knew the outcome, would you still go through the joy, even if it was going to end in pain? And Jacob comes to that same conclusion that, you know, it was all worth it. Everything that he did was amazing and incredible. And it's okay that he's going to forget it all because it still happened. It was still a real thing. And it really just resonated with me. It it made me think about how, um, you know, he wanted to respect their laws and follow the magical world's rules. He wanted to do his part to help keep it safe. Even if that cost him a potential romance and all of his memories. And of course, you know, the scenes then play out with this beautiful touching kiss between him and Queenie, which was, um, was awesome. I loved their relationship. I love the purity and the honesty of their relationship, how it was based on nothing other than she knew he was a good man. And that was what was important. And I love that that they went that direction with it. Um, And then it all comes back to that full circle thing where he didn't lose all of his memories. He's got those, those subtle things, right? Those implants. And he's making pastries in the form of Nifflers and Akamanes and all these different creatures. He's like, I don't know why it just comes to me. And then she walks in and so it gives me that hope that he's going to come back in. He's going to continue in the story and that they're going to still be able to connect because they have made a deeper connection between them that, you know, is more powerful. It's almost like love is more powerful than your memories in a way because he can't remember it, but there's something that is innately drawing him to her and to the magic the magic world now. And so I just, everything about that I loved yeah. and I hated seeing him obliviated. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so that was the moment in the film where I just was all in with the story and the writing. Yeah. And I think that you could take the story two ways and they, they will, I think they'll, they'll take it in one of two ways that um, I think one of the rules, whether it's in Britain or the U S is that wizards can't marry non wizard folks i think i think that's a rule it is and that's one of the other ones mm-hmm. so my 
my expectation is that one, a few things, he's going to be the guy, like he's, he's going to be a main character. Like he's going to be kind of like up there with Hermione and, and, and we, and Ron and and those guys, he's going to be one of those continuous, you know, regular characters. And that either he's going to marry her Queenie, he's going to marry Queenie and something that's going to, it's going to be a subplot of some kind, or he's going to find out that he's actually a wizard, but I don't know. I mean, I just, I think that the way they've written his character and his performance has merited more of what we're going to get, you know, in the future series, future installments of this, this series. And so my connecting point involved him as well, because I know you and I share that same kind of love for him. And it was really his introduction to the animals inside uh, Newt's briefcase, which I thought that was really cool. I mean, you mentioned it earlier. I think that's one of my, it's, it's a favorite scene of mine. So good. So good. I, I, I love the fact that when we, you know, we see each of these animals uh, in their quote environments, but then when we kind of pan out, we actually see that they're manufactured, that they're they have like the the Arizona backdrop, or uh, you know, we think it's actually Arizona, but it's but it's actually back a backdrop, and, and it's blowing in the wind. That that was yeah. some great great yeah. visualization there. Yeah, it was really cool, and so being able to see his reaction and get an idea of why Newt valued those beasts so much uh, helped me appreciate from an audience perspective and just care about what was happening going forward. Because up till then I was just like kind of confused. I was like, okay, what am, am, is Ha ha. That's funny. Whoa, that's weird. Uh, okay. He just hit him, you know, just things that were confusing me. And so it really was a connecting point because up until then I didn't have a real basis for enjoying the movie. And in that particular scene, we got to see a genuine comfort level that Newt had among the things that he loved the most, which I mentioned earlier. And then that sense of awe and wonder through Kowalski that really represented how we would or should respond seeing those creatures for the first time. And it reminded me of, you know, you mentioned on the show last week and you probably heard her that we just got a new puppy. She's a German shepherd. Her name is Savvy. And, And I love her. She is just fantastic. You know, she's my fantastic beast because she's just playful and, She's energetic and she's just got so much personality. And so the way in which Kowalski and Aaron, if you guys don't see this, but Aaron is holding one of his fantastic beasts. Yeah. One of his his 15 cats that he has in in his apartment. But in that same way, the love that Newt had and the way that he sort of gave that indirectly to Kowalski to see Kowalski just get excited about feeding these animals and to just explore a little bit. I was that, I mean, I would have been that way. I was like, this is so awesome. One, I'm inside some dude's briefcase <laughs> and two, I'm just experiencing all this for the first time. And, and that sense of, but there's still that sense of magical familiarity that we get, uh, from going inside that suitcase where all these animals were living. And so I, I being able to connect with Jacob specifically, on a human level, on a nomad level, on a muggle level, was was very much a quite literal connecting point for me because I was him in that moment. Yep. Me too. Me too. I think that's that's where they nailed it and said it a million times already during this podcast, but I, I do have lots of hope for where it's going to go. Um, I've, I mean, we have a history to fall back on. We, we, we know how the Harry Potter series of films went from one to seven or I guess one to eight ultimately. Um, yeah, and one how to seven and a half. Yeah. 
and uh and and they got better and better mostly as they went so this can be incredible and i think that it's very likely i may look back on this one and be like yeah that was just a a, you know decent so-so pretty good okay origin story Um, but where we go from here is going to be pretty awesome like i said with the grindelwald plot line and then you know lita lestrange was mentioned there were some Mm -hmm. hints dropped about newt's relationship with her and you know he was very not wanting to talk about that he did not want to want to go there and we know from our harry potter history that the lestrange family is not the nicest of families so um It'll be interesting to see where that one goes. I'm very intrigued as well. But yeah, that's uh, that's about it. So next week, Patrick, we are covering one of our collective favorite films of all time. I say that a lot, but this one is hands down in both of our probably top fives, uh, I would say. what Would you agree with that? Yes. 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 Yeah. And yes again. So we are going to be covering... Batman versus Wolverine, the movie. <laughs> no. Also called The Prestige. <laughs> also called The Prestige. So we've got Hugh Jackman. We've got Christian Bale. We've got Scarlett we've got, Johansson. We've got, go ahead. We've got Michael Caine. Yes, He's we gonna do. He's going to be in this one. <laughs> um, we've got Magic. We've got Christopher Nolan. We've got Secrets and Twists and just a really great story. And Patrick and I are super duper excited about doing this movie. Uh, so this is going to be a, a real treat for us to talk about. Absolutely. Um, so, so get ready for that. If you haven't seen it, uh, you need to go see it this week. You've got time. It's a, it's a long weekend. It's Thanksgiving. Find time to watch The Prestige. Uh, if you have seen it, watch it again. And then uh, come join us for an awesome conversation next week. I can guarantee you that it's going to be a fun one. If you want to talk to me about anything, you want to come tell me why I'm wrong about Fantastic Beasts, you wouldn't be the first. But... You're welcome to join that parade. Uh, social media, you can find me, Aaron, Aaron L. White, at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, on Twitter, Facebook, everywhere else you can imagine. You want to talk to us, uh, please do so. Patrick, where can they find you? So if you want to you know, look for this fantastic host and where to find him, you can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm at Twitter and Facebook, also on Instagram, and you can find me at my website, thisispatch.com. If you want to connect with us as a whole, you can always find us at feelinfilm.com. We're active in the Facebook group. Uh, just go to f- facebook.com slash feelinfilm, and the Facebook group is a link there. And that's where all the magic tends to happen. Uh, no Madge, Muggle, or otherwise, real magic. And, uh, and yeah, just find us there and continue the discussion. We have a lot of good stuff happening there every week. Absolutely. And it's been a good conversation this week. I appreciate you uh, having this this talk with me. Uh, Excited to hear what everybody else thinks about this movie. Until next time, as always, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.